Uh, we are continuing our series in Romans, and our text this morning is found in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open up and read, or the words will be on the screen as well. Let's read from God's Word. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the very Word of God. Uh, You know, a few weeks ago, Jeff approached me and he said, you know, Mike and I are going to be at General Assembly for the the week. Uh, Would you be willing to preach while we're gone so that we don't have to work on a sermon while we're at General Assembly? And I said, of course, I'd love to. Uh, I I love getting to preach. It's a great honor and it's an opportunity to, to use some of the gifts that he's given me as long as I don't have to preach Romans 13. Well, time went on and it became clear that the way the schedule was working out, that Romans 13 was going to fall on this Sunday. So I admit that I wasn't super excited when I first got the text about preaching until I sat down and really started to study and meditate over this passage. This is a text that many want to skip over or ignore altogether. But if we believe in the authority and inerrancy of scriptures, we have to let all of scripture, including and maybe even especially the passages that are difficult for us to impact us. And if we submit ourselves to the scriptures, we will find beauty in even the most difficult passages. When I first started prepping for this sermon, I read it over and over again, hoping that it might say something different each time I read it, but of course it never did. But what I found is that the more and more time I spent with it and let it grip my heart, the more of Christ I saw and the more of the glory of God I saw. So my hope this morning is that this text will show you the same thing. Christ magnified and exalted in the glory of God, even in the things that we don't fully understand. Well, first, if we're going to properly understand this text, we have to understand it in the context of the book of Romans and the context of Scripture as a whole. If you've been here the past few weeks, you'll know that we're in a section of Romans where Paul is laying out the implications of the gospel. He's already walked through the doctrine of salvation and what the gospel is, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in need of a Savior. And that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all who would believe in him and trust in him will be saved, both Jew and Gentile. 
And now we come to these chapters that presuppose the reader's understanding of that. That if you see the beauty of the gospel, the grace, the undeserved love and mercy of the gospel, then here's how you ought to live. Romans 13, 1-7 is, is really a continuation on the thoughts Paul laid out in Romans 12, 9-21. That's all about how we respond to the gospel in our lives and how that plays out in everyday life. Romans 12 dealt with how do we relate to one another, more interpersonal relationships. Now Romans 13 moves on to how do we relate to the authorities in our lives. Now, the structure of verses 1 through 7 is actually fairly straightforward. Verse 1 is the command, kind of the thesis of the passage. Then verses 2 through 7 expand upon the statements made in verse 1. Verses 2 through 4 give both a positive and a negative example of the sort of external motivations for obeying verse 1. And verses 5 through 7 deal with more internal motivations for obeying verse 1. In general... Paul can be kind of hard to understand. We saw a lot of that earlier in Romans. But here in chapters 12 and 13, Paul is very clear and to the point. He uses a lot of logic to explain what can be summed up just in verse 1. You'll notice a lot of for and therefore as we work through this passage. Paul is essentially answering the question, why, after each statement he makes in this passage. So we're going to work through the logic and structure of this passage and then talk about the implications and applications of the text. Now, beginning in verse 1, we have what is the thesis or summary of all seven verses. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Right away we see Paul making a statement and subsequently answering the question why that would be derived from that statement. So we have the command, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And we have the reason for the command. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. God's sovereignty here is expressed in his establishment of the institution of human governments. We'll come back to this in a little bit, but for now, let's continue with Paul's logic here in the passage. So now Paul moves on to the external motivations in verses 2 through 4. He begins verse 2 with, therefore. In other words, in light of everything I just said, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Again, he answers the why question that would emanate from this statement with, for or because rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad, which you have no fear of the one who is in authority. Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, a couple of things we have to note in this section. We can see that God's design for governing authorities is to be an institute of keeping order and peace. Rulers are meant to be a terror to bad conduct, not to good. In other words, they are here for the common good of mankind. Now, I'll address what 
probably everyone has been asking since the moment I read this text, what if the government or the authorities are not acting like this? What if there's someone bad in a position of authority? Well, we must first remember that that person is still in that position of authority under the sovereignty of God. We can see throughout the Old and New Testament that bad leaders were instituted as a judgment against God's people at times. And part of living in the already but not yet time period of redemptive history that we find ourselves in is that though Christ is risen and ruling, we still live in a fallen and sinful world. One of my favorite verses is Genesis 50:20, which says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Meaning sometimes God will take the most terrible things and somehow use them for good. We might not understand how or why, but we can trust him because he himself is good. Our baseline, though, to go back to our command in verse 1, is to submit to that authority. Now we know from the rest of Scripture that there are times when we should obey God rather than men, as it says in Acts 5.29, when authorities overstep. Primarily when they use their authority to force a Christian into something that is unbiblical. We then have a responsibility to the ultimate authority over the earthly authority. But let's make sure that we don't equate preferences with sin. In other words, we are called to submit to authorities up until the point that obedience and submission would cause us to enter into sin, even if it's not our preference. Let's remember where Paul is writing this letter from. He's writing about submitting to governing authorities while he's in prison from the very authorities that he's telling us to submit to. In a similar way, <clears throat> I'm coming to you this morning preaching God's word on submitting to authority as a lawbreaker. Don't worry, I'm going to tell you the story. About two weeks ago, when I got this text and I started to, to read it and began to think through the things that God was showing me, one of the first things that often comes to my mind is stories. And I started thinking, what stories do I have about submitting to the government or anything like that? I was really struggling with how to make it personal. How do I give helpful illustrations for communicating what this text says? Well, it just so happens that as I was wrestling with this about two weeks ago, God gave me a very clear example at my own expense. I was at LOA meeting with some folks, doing ministry like I've been called to do and that I love to do. And when that meeting was over, I was late for another meeting here at the church. So I jumped into my car and started to hurry back to the church. And I had just pulled out of LOA. I wasn't even at the light of Carrie Station in 44 yet when I looked in my rearview mirror and saw a blue light flashing. So I pulled over and immediately started to think, oh no, what have I done? And a little bit of, please don't let anybody from the church be driving by right now. This does not look good. Well, the officer walks up to the door and gives the standard, do you know why I pulled you over? To which I replied, no, sir, I don't, which was true at that point. And he said, you're not wearing your seatbelt. And I looked down, and in my rush, I hadn't put my seatbelt on, so I said, you're right, I'm not. And he gave me a chance. He said, any reason why that is? And I replied honestly, 
not any good ones. But I told him I was just at LOA and I was running late to a meeting and I just forgot to put it on. He says, okay, takes my license back to his car. So I sat there for what felt like an eternity thinking now I'm definitely going to be late. But also, it's just a seatbelt. I literally have been in the car for like 30 seconds. I've barely driven anywhere. But as I was sitting there, guess what else came to my mind? Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Well, sure enough, he eventually came back to my window and handed me back my license as well as a ticket for not wearing my seatbelt. Now, I had a couple of options on how to respond here. And hopefully you understand as I explain this that I'm not just talking about seatbelts. Number one, I could have said, I barely broke the law. It was just a small thing. I mean, I was barely driving for like 30 seconds. I do not deserve to get a ticket. I barely broke the law. Or number two, I could have said, personally, I don't actually like wearing a seatbelt, so I don't think I should get this ticket. Or number three, I could have given statistics that proved my position of not wearing a seatbelt was actually right, that the number of car crashes actually increased after the invention of the seatbelt because people get lulled into a false sense of security, that I don't deserve a ticket because my position is actually right. Again, hopefully you see that this is not just about seatbelts. But what I actually did and said, whether I agreed with the law or the ticket or not, was thank you. And then after a pause and a somewhat funny look by the officer, I said, I've got to preach on submitting to authority in two weeks, and this is going to be a great example. <laughs> to which he said, glad I could help. <laughs> and we both went on our way with my seatbelt buckled in this time. The external and internal motivations for obeying verse 1 continue in verses 5 through 7. Paul begins verse 5 with, therefore, again saying, in light of what I just said, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For, because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Paul concludes his logical argument here, suggesting that Christians ought to be the most peaceful, honorable, law-abiding citizens in the world. According to Paul, our conscience lends itself to this. You ever get that feeling in your stomach when you have done something you know you shouldn't have, or that you said something you shouldn't have, Paul says here that submission to God-instituted authority is one of those things. Again, we can sum up all of what Paul is saying in this passage with just verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And Paul isn't isolated here. This isn't just... Paul's random thought to the Romans, right? In, in Titus 3.1, he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Or 1 Peter 2, an entirely different person, now says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him 
to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Even something as mundane as paying taxes is an expression of obedience to God and love for Him. Now, I want to spend the bulk of our time talking about the implications and applications of this passage. Again, this is a straightforward command from Paul. First, I want to look at two examples in Scripture of how to rightly oppose government that is overstepping. And secondly, I want to suggest that there are three things necessary to live out the command in verse 1. Let's briefly look at two examples from Scripture where it was evident that authorities were overstepping and what the response was from these men in Scripture. There are many examples, but these are just the first two that came to mind. First, let's look in the Old Testament at the book of Daniel. Daniel, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are exiles living in Babylon under the rule of the Babylonian king. Now, these men actually find favor in Babylon because Daniel is able to interpret the king's dreams. However, in Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar makes a golden image which he demands and commands everyone must bow down and worship. And whoever doesn't will be thrown into a fiery furnace. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse. And when confronted by the king himself, they still refuse. So they're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace to literally be cooked until they are dead. And how do they respond? Daniel 3, 17 and 18. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And if you know how the story goes, you know that these men survive being in the fiery furnace and that in the midst of the fiery furnace, the Babylonians say that they see four men, not three. And something very similar happens to Daniel himself uh, between King Darius and Daniel 6 in the lion's den. Daniel refuses to, to stop praying and to bow down and worship the king. And he's thrown into a lion's den to be killed. And yet he survives. Well, let's look at the New Testament and let's look at the apostles in Acts. In Acts 5, the apostles are arrested and miraculously freed from prison by God. In response to this, they are bound again and brought before the council, where it was said, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. To which the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. Which echoes the response from Peter and John in Acts 4 when they found themselves in a similar situation. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Only this time in Acts 5, what was the fruit of their obedience to God? Acts 5.40, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. How do the apostles respond? The very next two verses, that they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching 
and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. When authority oversteps and says that we must worship something other than God or that we cannot speak or teach about Jesus or do something contrary to Scripture, we must obey God rather than men. But let's not kid ourselves. Submission is not an easy thing to do. Particularly submission when it comes to a different preference or something along those lines. We aren't really shown to be subject to authority until we disagree with something authority has done. When your governing leaders or your church leaders do something that you don't agree with, how do you respond? There's a way to voice disagreement that is respectful and shows honor, as verse 7 says in Romans 13. But at the end of the day, are you submitting to that decision? I'm not talking about things that are sinful. I'm talking about things that are preferences or differences of opinion. If we only submit and subject ourselves when we agree, we're not in submission, we're in agreement. We show ourselves to be in submission and subjection when we truly submit when we disagree. Not when we're being caused to sin, but preferences or opinions are differing. How in the world, in this day and age, are we supposed to do this? How did these men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Peter, and the apostles, do this? Well, I want to suggest that there are three things that are necessary to live out this command. Trust, humility, and hope. What this verse and this command, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, boils down to is do we truly trust in the sovereignty of God? That is the theological basis by which Paul makes this statement. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So the ultimate question is not whether or not you're going to submit to the earthly authorities, but are you going to submit to divine sovereignty and trust Him? Is Christ really supreme over all things, especially the things that we want control of? We must recognize his supremacy and authority over all things. As Abraham Kuyper famously says, there is not one square inch of this earth over which the risen Christ does not scream, mine, and I rule it. He is the one who, who with a word stops storms in their tracks, raises dead people to life. He tells entire planets, solar systems, and galaxies, you go and you exist here and you rotate at this speed and you move according to my will and my sovereignty. And they have no choice but to obey him. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He has no beginning and no end. He simply is eternally there. This entire chapter is driven from what Paul seems to spontaneously erupt in praise in Romans 11, 33-36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory 
forever. This is the one that we submit ourselves to. And again, subjection is a hard thing to do. It goes against our natural tendency as human beings. We want to control and run our own lives. We want to dictate where and when and how we go. But when we're tempted to doubt the sovereignty and goodness of God, remind yourself of Genesis 50-20 and how God took the most horrific thing to ever happen in this world, the death of his son, and used it to bring about the greatest news in the world. That through his death, which was sovereignly ordained, we are now granted eternal life with God. So thing number one that is needed to live out this command, a trust in the sovereignty of God is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second, living out this command requires a great deal of humility. I think last week, Jeff used C.S. Lewis's definition of humility. It's not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less, which is, I love that definition. Another pastor, John Piper, defines humility this way. It is the opposite of a sense of entitlement. So is your basic attitude in life, you owe me. You owe me a certain look when I walk in the room. You owe me a certain behavior in the neighborhood. You owe me what I want when I want it. And I'm mad if I don't get it. If that's your basic outlook on life, then you're not humble. And I'm not humble. Who in the world can be humble? Well, let's look back at something Paul said earlier in Romans. Romans 1, 14 through 15, he says, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to barbarians. And in verse 15, he says to the Jews as well. The Greek word that is used here is actually better translated, debtor. So it would read, I am debtor to the Greeks and to the Jews. In other words, Paul's attitude is the opposite of a sense of entitlement. He says, I owe everybody. Nobody owes me. How can someone say and live that way? Well, Paul was overwhelmed by the grace and the love of God. When God owed you nothing but hell, He experienced hell for you. Until you are gripped and overwhelmed by that, you will walk through life thinking, you owe me. But when you become overwhelmed with the reality that you were owed hell, and you got heaven at the cost of the life of the Son of God, entitlement goes out the window. Humility happens. And thus, the second thing needed to live out Romans 13. Third, living out this command requires hope that goes beyond this world. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we should live in such a way that shows that our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in any government or structure, but in Christ. Jesus says himself in John 18.36 before Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. And likewise, Paul says in Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven. 
When people look at our lives, it should be clear that our hope is in something far greater than anything this world has to offer. And we should live in a way that shows where our hope is and where our hope isn't. Again, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We live for the eternal, not the transient, not the temporal. We can get so caught up in the here and now that we forget eternity waits us. And not just an eternity, but an eternity where we will see our Savior face to face and experience everlasting joy without end. Think of the song Amazing Grace, which we sung just last week. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. All of us in this room, no matter how old or young you may be, I guarantee that we all think the same thing. I can't believe I'm already this age. Right? We used to look at people who are our age and think, man, they're old. And now that's us. The point being, our life is a vapor. It's a mist. It's here, and then it's gone. And on the other side, we have eternity. Where we'll spend a thousand years and be no closer to the end than when we first got there. That is our hope. And I know government and church authority is a sensitive issue in our culture, but oftentimes we live in such a way that our goal seems to be that we would get to heaven and look down at those experiencing unimaginable torment and an eternity of suffering and hell and say, told you so. When the reality is that the only thing that separates me from them is the grace and gift of God. Friends, would our trust, our humility, and our hope point people to our Savior, the only one by whom salvation is made possible? And may we rightly subject ourselves to authorities when at all possible, because our Savior, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is our hope, and this is our future, and this is why we can live out Romans 13. Let's pray.